The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you would, please open up to Romans chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you. That Bible is for you to keep if you don't own a Bible. Uh, But if you keep it, you have to read it. That's our rule. So please take that as a gift from Jacob's Well. Uh, We will be on page 945 in that red Bible, 1124 in the large print blue Bible, or page 1129 in the children's Bible. Right now we're in the middle of Romans chapter 9, covering the latter half today. Romans 9 is probably one of the most difficult chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, Not that it's difficult to understand, but it's difficult to swallow. And so I want to kind of recap Uh, what happened earlier in Romans that led us to this point. If you remember back in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us about some wonderful promises from God, that God will use all things in our life for good, to conform us into the image of Christ, and that God will indeed carry us on to glory, that our salvation is secure in him. And Paul ends with that great declaration at the end of Romans chapter 8 that all of us love so much, where he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we look to this verse, and it's so comforting to us to know that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. But to the original audience, those in Rome who received this letter, it would have raised an immediate question. They would have said, what about Israel? What about the Jews? They received similar promises in the Old Testament, and yet many of them have turned away from Christ. They've rejected Jesus as the Savior. And so how can we trust God's promises are true to us if he did not fulfill his promises to Israel, if many of them do not know the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can we know God's promises are true for us? And so that's what Paul has been talking about over Romans chapter 9. Uh, in verse 6, he, he explains this tension, or he at least highlights it. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed, uh, the promises of God, that's what they're wondering. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And so that's what Paul is continuing to address today, is how can we trust God's promises for us if, if it seems like God's promises have failed for Israel? So let's read. Uh, we'll start in verse 15, overlap a little bit from last time we were in Romans, and we'll read through verse 29. Romans 9, verse 15. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory 
for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Lord, we come to one of the most challenging and maybe one of the most controversial passages in Scripture. Again, not because it's not clear, but because we don't always like it. And so, God, pray that we would come to your word with humble hearts, not proud hearts, but hearts ready to hear and to understand and to rejoice in your truths. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school, um, I played football, Super Bowl Sunday. I can share football illustration, right? I guess I do it every Sunday. Anyways, uh, but I played football, uh, and I played offense, defense, and I was the kicker. And I remember one game, there was about three minutes left in the game. We were down something like 13 to 3. It was two scores. And it was fourth and 16. And the coach yells out to the team, punt, punt, punt. So I run back there. I'm the punter. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, why are we punting the ball? If we punt the ball, we're basically conceding the loss and saying the game is over. We need to score twice. There's four minutes left. We shouldn't be punting the ball. And so I think to myself, you know what? What if I just ran with the ball? I bet I could get the first down. Fourth and 16. And so there I am lined up to punt. And I am going through this in my mind. What should I do? Should I punt as the coach told me to or should I run the ball? And I still don't have my mind made up, but then the center snaps the ball and it falls just a little bit short and I grab it and I have momentum. So I'm like, I'm already running. I might as well just keep running. So I run and, and I make a go for it and I dodge a few tackles, make a few spin moves, finally get tackled, look up and I'm a yard short of the first down. And I'm like, oh man. And so... I took that run because I thought my plan was better than the coach's plan, right? And, and I somehow diverted the coach's plan. Maybe he had this glorious plan to help us win the game that I didn't quite understand. I really don't think he did, but maybe he did, right? But I was convinced my plan was better. The question that we're faced with today, the question that, that Paul's audience is faced with is, is in, in the hard-heartedness of Israel, that says, God, we don't care what you're calling us to do. We don't care what you're telling us to do. We're going to run the play we want to run. Is their hard-heartedness, their rejection of God, it's undermining the promises of God. God's promises to, to be their God, to, to bless them so that they can be a blessing to the world, to send a Messiah, a Savior, a Christ, to rescue them. Has God's promises been undermined? 
Because there are Jews who have rejected Jesus as the fulfillment of all those promises. And so this is the question that is going on in their mind. Can they thwart God's promises? Does God's promises no longer hold true because of their rebellion, because they wanted to do things their way? And so Paul is continuing to respond to this question. If you weren't here last time when we preached on the first half of Romans 9, I encourage you to go online and do that. It's helpful. This is a tough chapter. But Paul is continuing to respond to that question. And the first thing Paul tells us, which is probably the most difficult of all things that we read in Romans 9, maybe in the whole Bible, is that God hardens hearts. Verse 15, we'll start there. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now Paul is speaking to Jews, referring back to the Exodus from the book of Exodus. If you're not familiar with it, the, the, the Israel was in bondage and slavery in Egypt for 400 years. It became very oppressive, so much so that they were commanded to kill all the babies of the Israelites. And so God sends Moses to be his mouthpiece, and he comes to Pharaoh. And do you remember what he says to Pharaoh? Let my people go, right? And Pharaoh's like, why would I let these people go? I mean, it's free labor. Why would I let them go? I need them. And who is the Lord your God? What does he mean to me? He's not more powerful than me. And so Pharaoh writes it off, and God sends a plague. And in the plague, he turns all the water into blood. And so the Nile turns to blood. All the fish die. The people have no water to drink. And then he relents of that. But then he sends another plague. He sends a plague of frogs. And Pharaoh calls Aaron, calls Moses, and says, Hey, listen, I know. I'll let you go. Please just make the frogs go away. And so they, they, they make the frogs go the way. God makes the frogs go away. And Pharaoh changes his mind. He hardens his heart. He says, you know what? Forget it. I'm not going to let you go. You stay here. And so God sends more plagues. There's the third plague of the gnats in which the theme is repeated, right? So Pharaoh calls Aaron and Moses, says, hey, would you make these gnats go away? I'll let you go if you do this. So they pray to God. God makes them go away. And then Pharaoh says, I changed my mind. He hardens his heart, right? And this continues through every plague. The fourth plague of flies, the fifth plague of the Egyptian livestock, the sixth plague of the boils, and then we get to the seventh plague. And before the seventh plague, we read this in Exodus 9, verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And then verse 15, if you can kind of remember it, we're going to come back to it later. He says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. If you know the rest of the story, you know that these things did indeed come true, that the Lord did show himself as God even over Pharaoh and the most powerful empire in the entire world. 
as he sent the plagues upon them and then destroyed the Egyptian military. And because of this, wherever the people of God went, they would say, oh, these people belong to the Lord God, the Lord who destroyed the Egyptians, the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. And so God exalted himself through demonstrating his power through Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. Now it's interesting because Pharaoh, time and again, refuses to submit to God. But if he just one time says, okay, I'm going to do what the Lord God calls me to do, then the plagues don't happen. None of that happens. But the judgment comes because Pharaoh hardens his heart time and time again. Looking back at Romans 9, verse 17. Having this context, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, which he did, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, which it was. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Here's the million-dollar question. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart, or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? It's interesting, if you look at Exodus chapter 4 through chapter 14, it actually talks about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart 19 different times, okay? Three times it says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is before Moses goes in to talk to Pharaoh. Six times it says that God did harden Pharaoh's heart. Seven times it simply says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then three times we are told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so the question is, did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? If you've been here long enough, you probably know the answer is yes. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. It's not a perfect illustration, but let's pretend me and Pastor Jonathan go to Chuck E. Cheese, okay? We go to Chuck E. Cheese because we like to play the games, eat the pizza, ride the rides, right? We just call that Tuesdays around here. That's what we do on Tuesdays. We go to Chuck E. Cheese. But me and Pastor Jonathan, we go to Chuck E. Cheese. We're having fun. We're having a good time. And in walks Mike Tyson, all right? And Jonathan looks at me, and he can tell. I, by the way, Mike Tyson, for you young kids, he was a prize fighter, all right? Mike Tyson walks in, and he can tell I am angry. I am livid. He's not sure why, but I get up to go after Mike Tyson. And, and Pastor Jonathan, even though he's short, he's strong and scrappy, and he holds me back, and he restrains me from going after Mike Tyson. He's like, dude, what's going on? I said, he lost me a lot of money. He lost a fight he shouldn't have lost. And I'm so mad. I'm so angry. I would go give him peace in my mind. I'm going to show him who's boss. And so Pastor Jonathan restrains me, restrains me, restrains me. But after me continuing to fight against him, he's like, all right, fine, go. So I go up to Mike Tyson and I punch him in the stomach. Nothing happens except he returns it with a punch and I fall down to the ground, right? Now let me ask you, why did I get knocked out? Was it because of my own angry, stubborn, hard heart? Or was it because Pastor Jonathan stopped restraining me? The answer is both, right? It's, it's both. And so what we see is that God did not operate against Pharaoh's free will for Pharaoh to become hard of heart. What God did is he simply removed his restraining grace and allowed Pharaoh to follow his heart to his content. And Pharaoh's heart was delighted to rebel against God, to be hardened against God, to oppose God. And so God 
turns Pharaoh over to a hardened heart. And so was it God or was it Pharaoh that hardened Pharaoh's heart? The answer is both, as God removes his restraining grace. Now, Paul knows when we hear this, our, our mind questions this and wonders, how can God do this? So verse 19, he speaks preemptively. He's good at this. He says, verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then Paul gives maybe the greatest illustration to demonstrate that God is God and that you are not. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? By the way, God does not turn away a humble prayer of, Lord, help me understand this. But when we're coming to God with a clenched fist trying to tell him how to be God, he will rebuke us. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You see, that ends with a question mark. What's the answer to the question? Does the potter have right to do with the clay whatever the potter wants? The answer is yes. Now, Paul goes on to offer an explanation of why God hardens some or or removes his restraining grace so they are hardened. Verse 22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, just as he did with Pharaoh through the plagues in the Red Sea, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, I don't know if you remember that verse. I told you we would get back to it. But in Exodus 9, God says that he could have struck Pharaoh down. He could have eliminated him from the earth but so that he could show his power, so his glory would be proclaimed throughout the earth. He is patient with him. He lets him endure. He lets him live. You know, I think verse 22 is so important for us to understand that it is God's removal of his restraining grace that hardened Pharaoh's heart, that allowed Pharaoh to follow his free will to harden his heart. Because here you see, it says that God endured with much patience vessels of wrath. God, it doesn't seem like God is forcing Pharaoh against his will to harden his heart. He's allowing Pharaoh to follow his own free will to harden his own heart. God removes his restraining grace and gives Pharaoh over to his own free will to harden his heart. Why? Verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Even us. Excuse me, I skipped one which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So let me quickly summarize what I think Paul is communicating here. He's saying, what if God, instead of bringing his quick and just judgment against those who are hardened against him, defied against him, those who oppose him, what if Instead of God bringing his just judgment to wipe them off the face of earth, what if instead of that God endures with them patiently so that through them you may see the power and the glory of God? Now we may ask, how does God show his power through working with hardened people? Well, there are two ways. One is just like here in the Exodus, God has preserved the people of God, even though there is a hardened heart that is opposed to God, that can eliminate them. God preserves them. We see that throughout history. God's people are always opposed. People always want to eliminate the people of God through their hard hearts, and yet God always preserves his people. 
But the second way that we see the power of God through hardened hearts is it shows the power of God's restraining grace in our heart. Let me give you an example. Trish and I just the other day, two days ago, we were grieving over some friends who decided to get a divorce. And we grieve over it because we know the destruction and the pain that it causes. And and Trish doesn't like it when I say this, or she's told me this in the past, but I'm convinced that if God did not save me, if he did not put his restraining grace on me, there's no way I'd still be married. And Trish is an amazing woman. She shovels our driveway, all right? She's an amazing woman. But I was so hard-hearted, I was so intent and bent on my own pleasure, I was so fixed on rebelling against any sort of commitment that surely I would have run away to what I would have perceived to be the good life, but would have been horrific and damaging and absolutely misery. Let me give you another example. I play basketball with a bunch of different guys. They're my friends. I love them. I care for them. I want them to know Christ so bad. But I'm with them, and they have these conversations that are so, so, so sad. They talk about things that I cannot even mention here, and they, they promote it as the good life, and yet they are miserable people because they chase after things that, 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 that the world says is good but that God says is bad. And my heart breaks for them. But it makes me realize how powerful God's restraining grace is on my own life because I would not only be them, I'm convinced I would be far worse than them in my pursuit of the world. And yet God has shed his grace on me, his restraining grace to keep me from my own free will, my own hardened heart to pursue things that would bring utter destruction to my life. And so God demonstrates his power. He he shows what a hardened heart looks like to show us that that would be us, but for the grace, the restraining grace of God. Now, how do we apply these verses? First off, we praise God for his restraining grace. His restraining grace may not be something you praise him for, but we should. Because we would not understand the power of his restraining grace unless he removed it from us. The second is when there are pharaohs at our workplace or in the community or wherever it might be who have a hard heart against God and against his plans, we can be certain of this, that God will win the day. That God is more powerful than any Pharaoh this earth has ever seen. Let me just wrap up this main point. This is kind of where we're camping out with this one more thing. Is that, you know, as we think about how God would use hardened hearts to accomplish his purposes, it seems hard to imagine. But let me just give you one more illustration. When Jesus was gathered with his disciples for that final Passover meal, Jesus says to them as they're eating, he says to them, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And there was, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And then it says this, and it's on the screen. The son of man goes as it is written of him, as it is prophesied, as God has sovereignly planned out. The son of man will go to the cross. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He is responsible for what he does, even though it is the plan of God. His hard heart is on him. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. See, friends, it seems hard to comprehend how God could use hardened hearts for the glory of his purposes. And yet it was the hardened heart of Judas who, who led to the Christ being sent to the cross. It was the hardened heart of the people yelling out, crucify him, crucify him, that brought apart upon our salvation. Because at the cross is where he took on our sinfulness, our hardness of heart, and paid for it in full before God to give us newness of life in him. And so God hardens hearts, not against a person's will, but in accordance with their free will. And he does so by removing his restraining grace to display his power and his glory and to accomplish his saving purposes. Secondly, we see here that God includes. Again, Paul is writing to the Roman church. It's a mixed audience. There are Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Gentile is a word that simply means non-Jewish, okay? And the Jewish Christians are wondering, why are not all the Jews trusting in Christ for their salvation? But they're also wondering, what are all these Gentiles doing here? Why are they infesting the church? I mean, they don't have the Old Testament scriptures. They don't have the promises of God. How is it that they're trusting in Christ, but our Jews, our Jewish friends are not? How could this be? And so Paul answers that. Again, verse 24. Even us whom God has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed God says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. If you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament. And he, and he lived before the, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria. So it was, it was before 721 B.C. And Hosea was given a very interesting calling in life by God. I'll read it to you. Hosea 1-2 says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Can you imagine this, all right? Hosea goes on a men's retreat, all right? They're all talking, they're all praying, and they're like, hey, Hosea, what has God called you to in life? And there's this long, awkward pause, and he's like, um, uh, God called me to marry a wife of whoredom. Oh, really, Hosea? That's an interesting calling. And they have children of whoredom. Oh, Hosea, that's a very fascinating calling. Are you sure this is from God? But God calls Hosea to this to show how Israel has treated their God. That, that God has rescued them, delivered them, provided for them, loved them, cared for them, committed himself to them, the God of the universe. And how did they respond? They promiscuously went after God, after God, after God, after God, whether it be a golden calf or Baal or whatever it might be. They were adulterous people. And so God actually says to Hosea, hey, here's what I want you to do. You're going to have these children, and I want you to give them symbolic names, all right? So the first child, God says, call him Jezreel. Jezreel means to be scattered. And, and this name is symbolic because the Assyrians would come in, conquer the northern uh, Israel, and would, would scatter them throughout their empire. The second child, he says, call him Lo-Rahim, which means not loved, because you no longer deserve my love, because you are promiscuous. You are chronically adulterous. In the third child, he says, call Lo-Ami, 
which means not my people. This would have been devastating because this was their great hope that they were the people of God. And so God uses Gomer and her children as a symbol of Israel's adultery and God's just judgment coming upon them. But Hosea doesn't end there. Hosea is a marvelous book. And what God does, what is so wonderful and glorious, is that God comes and changes all of the children's names. First, God says to change the name of the child scattered to planted because God will root his people. That the second child named not love shall be renamed the loved one. And that the third child named not my people will be renamed you are my people. And he is told that the people respond, respond, and you are my God. You see, the purpose of Hosea is not only to show the adultery of Israel and the justice of God's judgment, but to show that their unfaithfulness is not enough to exhaust God's redeeming love. Now, how does this passage in Hosea fit into the discussion in Romans 9? Well, as we look in Romans 9, verse 25, again, with this in the background, he says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And he who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And so what Paul is declaring is that the Gentiles being brought into a church is the fulfillment of this promise in Hosea, that God scatters his people throughout the world, throughout the Gentiles, but then he will gather them back together. And when he gathers them back together, it will be infested with Gentiles, Gentiles like you and like me. It will infest his people, and his people will be called the church. The apostle Peter This isn't just Paul's idea. The apostle Peter reaffirms this in 1 Peter. In writing to the church, what he does is he takes the the labels used and applied to Israel in the Old Testament, and he says, this now applies to you, the church, both Jews and Gentiles. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Peter refers to Hosea. He says, once you were not a people, but now you, the church, Jews and Gentiles, are the God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Paul is saying is that the Jews can no longer claim that a person needs to become Jewish before they can become a Christian, because there is a new people of God. There is a new era in the people of God, and it is the church, a Gentile-infested community who are God's people, who are God's beloved, who are God's very own children. At one of my son's basketball games, there's a ref, and I think his name is Larry. And Larry's around 75 years old, an older gentleman, still still going strong. It's amazing to see. But I love Larry because Larry's just brutally honest. So one time there was a tip ball that went out of bounds, okay? And and with a very authoritarian, a very sure of himself, says, white ball! And then he turns around and looks at the crowd and he says, I have no idea. I really have no idea. I'm like, this is great. I like this guy. Well, later in that game, he comes over to the stands and, he's, and he picks out certain children. He's like, you, 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 come with me. And so uh, I think two or three of my children were a part of that. And so they follow Larry. We have no idea what Larry's doing. Maybe he's going to have him go move small furniture or something. I don't know. Um, but he takes him out and he takes him to the concession stand. He says, Pick out some candy. It's on me. 
And so my kids are like, what? This is amazing. So they get candy, and they come back in, and you should have seen their faces. It was beaming, right? Like, Larry bought us candy. Mom and Dad, you never buy us candy. Larry bought us candy, right? And they're so excited. Larry had no obligation to do this at all. These are not his children. They are not his grandchildren. But he came and said, you, 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 I'm going to show grace to you. This is what God does to the Gentiles. How should we respond like a kid in a candy store? Rejoicing that God has given his grace to Gentiles like us. Not his grace of sugar, but his grace of salvation. That we would know the Lord God. That he would reveal himself to us and make us his own children. Rejoice. God has brought you into his people and called you his own. God hardens hearts by removing his restraining grace to accomplish his purposes. God includes undeserving Gentiles by gathering them from throughout the world. And finally, we see God preserves. The next question that Paul would anticipate from the Jews, because Paul, this isn't the first time Paul had this conversation with Jews. He knows the questions that come. And so the next question he anticipates goes like this. Well, if the Gentiles are now included as equals amongst the people of God, then does this mean that God has abandoned his promise to Israel? Why is it that some of Israel receives Christ as the Messiah and some do not? Again, Paul is going to point us back to the Old Testament. We're getting a lot of Old Testament today. He points us back to Exodus. He points us back to Hosea. Now he points us back to Isaiah to show that God has indeed fulfilled his promise. Isaiah, uh, verse 27, sorry, Romans 9, verse 27. Paul says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom, and become like Gomorrah. All right, let's start at the end of that. Verse 29, work backwards. What do we know about Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah were excessively wicked. Uh, even to today's standards, they were horrifically wicked. And so what God did is God brought fire down from heaven and wiped them off the face of the earth. And everyone was destroyed and everything was destroyed except for Lot and his clan that came out. But God destroyed them because they were so wicked. And what Paul is saying here is that the wickedness of Israel was so bad, their adultery was so pervasive, that what they deserved was to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. They deserved the judgment of God, the wrath of God. But the good news is that God extended mercy to him. He preserved for them a remnant. Verse 27, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant, only a remnant of them will be saved. What Paul is confronting here is an Israel mindset, a Jewish mindset of universal salvation for Israel. That everyone in Israel, because of their ethnicity, will be automatically saved. Will be part of God's people for all eternity. This is their mindset, a, a universal salvation for Israel, for the Jews. And, and what Paul is saying is, God never made that promise. If you think that's the promise that God made, then you're right. We can't trust God's promises, but that's not the promise God made. The promise God made was not to save all of Israel, but to save a remnant of Israel. And the church of Rome was proof of this. And Pentecost was proof of this. And Paul himself was 
proof of this. And so were the churches throughout the Mediterranean were proof that God saved a remnant. But he did not save all. He saved those with circumcised hearts. He saved those who were children of Abraham, not by physical descent, but by spiritual descent. We see throughout the scripture this constant threat of this remnant and God preserving it. God promises to Abraham, I will make a great nation out of you. I will bless you. I will be your God and you will be a blessing. The threat pops up right away. Sarah, his wife, is barren. And yet at the ripe age of 90, God says, I will open your womb. And she produces a child, Isaac. Isaac has a wife named Rebecca. She too is barren. She cannot conceive a child. The remnant is being threatened. And God opens her womb. They have children and and their children have children, and, and they're the people of God. They're Israel, and they're, they're under the attack of starvation. They might die. And so what does God do? God takes Joseph and sends him down to Egypt, makes him the second most powerful man in the world to preserve the remnant. And then they're in Egypt, and they're under bondage, and they're under slavery, and God delivers them out to preserve the remnant. They're wandering in the wilderness. They have no food. They could starve to death. God provides manna in the wilderness to preserve the remnant. They rebel against God. They worship other gods. He brings in judgment of the Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians. The remnant is threatened, but God preserves the remnant. And he carries the remnant all the way through up to Christ, who was was the fulfillment of God's promises to bring salvation, not to every Israelite, but to the remnant God had promised. And so we can trust God's promises when we see in Romans 9, God promising us that he will never leave us or forsake us, that that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. We can believe that to be true because God did not promise universal salvation to all of Israel, but to a remnant. And he was faithful to his promise to them, and he will be faithful to his promise to us. Let me end with this. After I ran the football and made it a yard short, uh, I got up and I walked over to the sideline. Needless to say, my coach was not excited at my decision. And so he chewed me out and he sat me out for the rest of the game. And what he was doing at that point is he was reminding me that he was the coach and that I was not, (laughs) right? This passage might be the most clear passage in all of Scripture to remind us of this one thing, that God is God and that we are not. And that he is not just God part of the time. He's not just God with the good people or the people who trust in him, but he's God over all people. Now, I'm not going to pretend like this is easy to swallow or easy to understand. It's something we struggle with and we wrestle with. But friends, we are not qualified to be God. If we were God, we would be vengeful gods. We would would not be a gracious God. We would not be a merciful God. But the good news, friends, is that you are not God and I am not God, but that God is God and he is merciful and gracious to those he has come to save. Let's pray. Lord God, we are clay. You are the potter. You have brought us into your people. You have made us your children. Our hearts rejoice that you did not let us wander in our own ways, follow our hardened hearts, but you softened our hearts. You gave us ears to hear, eyes to see the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of your love for us in Christ, and to draw us to yourself. Lord, these are hard things that we're learning today, God. Many churches would skip this 
to not offend anyone, but this is your word, and it is right, and it is good, Lord. God, I pray that we would not let our theology interpret the scripture, but God, may your scripture interpret our theology. May we submit to you. May we know that you are God and that we are not, and this is great news. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.